So imagine getting pregnant during your senior year of high school and everyone, and I mean everyone tells you that college is no longer a reality. Now, this negative outlook is often unfairly presented to teen mothers. And this is something that Nicole Lynn Lewis experienced firsthand. She left home and experienced periods of homelessness, hunger, and poverty. Yet, despite these obstacles, she was able to enroll in college and brought her three-month-old daughter along. Along the way and during her journey, she discovered her true calling and purpose in life. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about on this episode of the Best Thing Podcast. This conversation that we have is so important. It is so amazing. I just know you're going to love the words that Nicole Lynn shares. Now, look, before we get to that episode, I want to let you know, as always, I would love to hear from you. Each week, I send out motivational text messages that people love. I mean, they, they, they love. If you want in on the magic, send me a text message to 310-564-7124. Once again, 310-564-7124. Hey, if you're more of an, an email kind of person, because I get it, people like the email, quick Tip though, your inbox is not your to-do list. That's just an aside. But if you are an email kind of person, head over to theantonionevs.com to sign up to receive weekly emails from me directly to your inbox. All of this information is in the show notes. Okay, let's get on to episode 67 of the Best Thing Podcast with Nicole Lynn Lewis. Hey everyone, welcome to the Best Thing Podcast, where I talk to people about the best thing to happen to them that doesn't include the traditional markers of success. I'm your host, Antonio Neves. I'm the author of Stop Living on Autopilot, a speaker and success coach. Each week, I bring on a new guest who has a powerful story to tell that will motivate, inspire, and help you see life through a new lens. Now, this week's guest is someone I've been looking forward to talking to for quite some time. Nicole Lynn Lewis is the founder and CEO of Generation Hope, a nonprofit organization that surrounds motivated teen parents and their children with the mentors, emotional support, and financial resources they need to thrive in college and kindergarten. A former teen mother herself who put herself through college with her three-month-old daughter in tow, Nicole now works every day to change the statistic that less than 2% of teen mothers will earn their degrees before the age of 30. Nicole has been honored as a CNN hero and has been featured on major news outlets, including Good Morning America, CNN, NBC Nightly News, and The Washington Post. Her highly anticipated book, Pregnant Girl, A Story of Teen Motherhood, College, and Creating a Better Future for Young Families, is now available. Nicole Lynn Lewis, welcome to the Best Thing Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. I'm glad to have you here. Let's talk about teen motherhood just for a quick second. Um, you know, we were just talking before I hit record and I had to send a text a text message to my mother to see if it was okay to mention a couple of things because, you know, I'm realizing my, my mother was pregnant when she was 18 mm. with my sister. 
And my, my, my sister equally uh, had, a, had a daughter. I guess she got pregnant when she was 19 years old and had a child at a young age. And so one thing I want to talk about is, is first stigma. Stigma when it comes to you know teenage mothers. And it makes me think about even when people get divorced nowadays, like it, there's so much shame attached to it. You know, people make mistakes, we make errors, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but can you talk about just the, the stigma and maybe, and I'm being biased right now with even my question, but how it's just so wrong? I feel like people are attacked sometimes for decisions they made in their youth. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think stigma and shame are huge when it comes to to teen parents and teen pregnancy. And I think sometimes we think because there's shows like Teen Mom and 16 and Pregnant and, you know, on MTV and and we no longer have to kind of talk about teen pregnancy in these hushed conversations. It is a conversation that we can have publicly that it makes it seem like maybe there isn't as much stigma and shame associated with it. And that's really not the case. I think while we can talk about it more, there is still so much negativity that surrounds young parenting and, and, you know, having a child young, all of the things that go along with that. And the sad thing about it is that that stigma is damaging. You know, it, it influences whether or not we're going to support a a young family, a a young person who discovers a pregnancy at a critical time when they really, really need it. And um, it also masks, I think, the complexities of teen pregnancy. Like we think about teen pregnancy as a very black and white issue. Um, And it's not. It's a very complex issue. And it's wrapped up in a ton of different things from race to gender to poverty to sex, you know, things that we don't want to talk about and don't want to deal with. And, you know, I I talk about it in, in Pregnant Girl that we also assume that, you know, everything was going fine for a young person, you know, in their lives. And then all of a sudden the pregnancy was the thing that kind of derailed them. And, and in many cases, in my own experience, that's not the case. Usually there was something going on in a young person's life way before a pregnancy um, that caused them to, you know, really feel, uh, you know, powerlessness and feel like they weren't in control of their situations. Yeah. And it also makes me think about society, you know, especially if we go back many, many moons, different generations where even it wasn't even abnormal for people to have child children at younger ages. Um, you know, I think the message that a lot of people hear as it relates to teen pregnancy, if you get pregnant as a teenager, that your life is over and you should give up. Like that's the message it seems like society says, and there's a lot of judgment. I mean, I can think back to one time I, I was dating a woman many, many years ago and we went to church and she had a young child. It wasn't my child, but she had a young child. And we went to church and I remember the judgment that I felt in that mm-hmm. church when they noticed that we didn't have rings on our finger and we weren't married and there was a, a young child with us. And it's as if society says you, you have to give up. But but I'm what I'm hearing you say and through your book as well is that at a time like that is not when we need to run away from people. That's when we need to run to them and empower them. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, um, when a young person discovers a pregnancy, realizes they're going to be a parent, that's probably the most scary and difficult time for them. Um, you know, I just know in my own experience, just really being afraid of what the future held, whether or not I was going to be able to be successful, even like not knowing what to expect, you know, in being pregnant and, and bringing a life into the world. It's just a crazy time. And and we really do the opposite as a society of what we should be doing, which is rallying around that that parent, rallying around that child, making sure that both of them have the supports that they need to 
to really be okay and to be stable. And I want to go back too to something that you mentioned about kind of historically, um, you know, teen pregnancy rates were the highest in the 1950s. Wow. And, you know, when I got pregnant, the teen pregnancy was labeled as, you know, this, this um, kind of crisis that had just emerged and that these skyrocketing teen pregnancy rates, and it really goes back to like how we frame these issues, how we talk about them. But when you look at the data, that, that wasn't the case. You know, they were lower than they had been in the 1950s. So a lot of this goes back to like how we talk about these things, how we frame these issues, and of course, how we respond to young people when they need us the most. Let's dig into that for a quick second, because as you said, how we talk about these things, how we frame these issues. Now I want to go go somewhere. And that is, can we talk about how race plays into this? Because my hunch is race, uh, there's a lot of bias that comes in when we t- people talk about um, teen pregnancy. So I'm curious to hear your perspective on that. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's absolutely something that we see disproportionately happening in communities of color. Um, so, you know, Black girls are twice uh, more likely to become teen mothers than uh, their white counterparts. Um, it is absolutely, you know, I think as we're talking about what's happening across the country in terms of race, we're having these national conversations and these racial reckonings um, about all of the disparities. We have to be talking about teen pregnancy because you're you're going to see higher rates with um, uh, Black teens, Latinx teens, Native American teens in the communities that have the most uh, or lack the most resources, lack the most support, you know, they're they're lacking the opportunities, they're lacking the quality education, all of those things factor into whether or not a teen is more at risk of of, you know, becoming a parent young. And so race is absolutely connected to teen pregnancy. And if we're, if we're, you know, talking about teen pregnancy and we're not talking about race, we're completely missing the mark. If we want to prevent teen pregnancy, then we really need to start talking about racial disparities. We need to start talking about why poverty is more um, likely in these communities and poverty, you know, lends itself to higher teen pregnancies. So it's, it's so interconnected and, and I think it's an opportunity for us, especially now with the conversations that we're having as a country uh, to really start to recognize this and talk about it in the context of teen pregnancy. Yeah, it's so important to talk about. And I remember having a conversation, you know, the previous guest on the podcast, Latham Thomas, and we talk about disparities. It just blows my mind, especially when it relates to pregnancies. And I don't have numbers as it breaks down to to age wise, but even the disparities that happen with pregnancy and infant mortality and different mm-hmm. things, the type of health care that people are receiving, if you look at it from a race perspective, really is frustrating and blows your mind that those things are happening. And and I don't know if that happens specifically to teen moms as well, but those numbers are, are really scary. Yeah, absolutely. I think disparities in the healthcare system absolutely play a role in uh, teen pregnancy rates being more common in certain communities. Um, you know, whether or not you have access to birth control, is your provider talking to you about birth control? And is your provider really educating you about effectiveness of birth control? And that's also something I talk about in the book. You know, we know that there's been huge disparities in the healthcare system historically for communities of color, um, particularly in the Black community. And, um, you know, we're having those conversations now around the pandemic and the vaccines. Um, It's something that has been here all along and is something that absolutely plays a role in whether or not young people have the information and the access to uh, birth control and all of their reproductive health information that is really critical for them to have power over their bodies. 
Yeah, and I, we'll get to this question of the best thing for you in, in a quick moment. And my, my hope it does surround the content of your book. But you, like you said, as you mentioned earlier in the introduction, you're the founder and CEO of Generation Hope. And y'all, let me just say this. This is not an advertisement. I'm not doing the, hey, let me just roll in real quick and tell you about this, the sponsor of this episode. Generation Hope is an amazing organization that I've had the opportunity to work with and, and read some stories to online over the course of, of the pandemic. And I've been blown away with what the work that, that you do, the work that your team does. And I want to make sure everyone knows that you can support this amazing organization. There will be a link in the show notes to do exactly that. But I'm curious, as you were starting this organization, not where you are today, but when you were starting it, were, did you find people fired up, so excited to support you in your mission, <laughs> what you were doing? Here's a check. Here's these resources. Here's X, Y, and Z. Or did you find that it was a struggle to get support and maybe even some resistance that you met? Yeah, um, I would say the answer is yes and no. People in the community were very excited about Generation Hope. People who had um, who were passionate about the mission, who believed strongly in supporting women and families and um, fathers and and children, and who believed strongly in the role of education um, and the power that that has in people's lives. And so people in the community of the community were like, this is so needed. And I'm so glad that you're stepping up to do this. You know, the funders and and, and the people who often hold the purse strings, uh, who kind of are the power brokers. I had a lot of resistance of people saying that this was not a population that was going to be successful in college in large numbers. You know, it didn't matter that I had lived the mission and I was kind of a living example of what is possible when we surround young parents with the resources and supports that they need. You know, they considered me an outlier. And so um, there was a lot of doubt around my vision, a lot of doubt around how far this organization could go and and how big it could grow. And, um, you know, I was just talking earlier about one of the hardest parts about being a founder is you know, pushing for your vision when there are people around you who are are doubtful of that vision. And um, and especially when those people have the power and the resources to, to make it flourish. And, uh, you know, that's something certainly that I was up against at the onset of Generation Hope. But even as we've grown, you know, we've been doing this for 10 plus years now. And as we have grown as an organization, our ambitions have grown, you know, so now not only are we working locally with teen parents in the DC area, we're, we're doing national work now to really start to help colleges and universities uh, better support parenting college students. And there's, there's even, you know, resistance to that. Sometimes I had someone say higher ed is too hard to change. <laughs> and so therefore, you know, stay away. And um, as a as a founder, I think my job is to push for those things that are impossible and to help people to see kind of, you know, what the path forward can be. Listen, you just got me fired up. And what, what a beautiful reminder for all of us to push for those things that are impossible, that, are, that on paper may not seem feasible, but through conviction, through belief, through persistence, they can be possible. Wow. What a great reminder uh, to push for those things that are impossible. Again, before we get to this question of the best thing, could, could you just share, and I'm going to put you on the spot here real quick, a couple of success stories uh, that come out of Generation Hope. Are there are there any individuals that, you know, you have so many, your track record is amazing, but if there is just like a couple of people right when you hear Generation Hope that young women that come to mind that put a smile on your face, I'd love to hear uh, a success story. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, as you said, we have so many. I'm so incredibly proud of our alums uh, who are now working as teachers and uh, computer engineers, and some of them are on our staff at Generation Hope. They got their degrees, and we scooped them up and and uh, you know brought them onto our team. Um, we have uh, you know nonprofit professionals working with other organizations, and all of these things are careers that ha- would not be possible without their college degrees. So it's just su- such an honor and so rewarding to see them. Uh, thriving and doing things that, again, you know, almost every scholar in our program will tell you that someone said along the way that they couldn't go to college. And so just seeing them doing so well and pursuing their passions and supporting their families flies in the face of that. It's been amazing. Um, one scholar who uh, I'd love to talk and about. Just is- even, I'm sorry to interrupt, but just tell me and tell me about, I think words are so important. Yeah. Words that come out of our mouth. So continue with the story of this person, but just tell me about the intention and why you use the word scholar, because I love that you use the word scholar. Yes. Yeah. And that is absolutely intentional. Um, I think there is power in words. And that's one of the things, you know, the reason the book is called Pregnant Girl is because that was a label. Like that's a label that we use when we talk about uh, young mothers, for example. Um, And what does that make you think about yourself or teen mother, you know, teen father? Um, And so scholar is absolutely intentional. Sometimes it's the first time in, in a young person's life that someone has referred to them um, in that way and giving, you know, giving them that kind of a validation and it matters. It makes you think of yourself differently. Um, so our scholar Yaslin is incredible. She uh, is such an, a success story. She came over to this country with her mom and sister when she was younger and, uh, and experienced all of the challenges of being undocumented and her mother was working, you know, three and four jobs while she was growing up to support her family. And, you know, what does that do when you're not able to uh, have your mom there with you when you need her as you're growing up? Yaslin had to like start working at a very young age to help be a breadwinner in her family. And when she got her DACA status, she was able to kind of get a, a you know, on paper job at McDonald's and worked a ton of hours in addition to going to school. She became pregnant in high school and uh, really didn't see the point of staying in high school, never mind going to college, uh, and just experienced so many challenges. And someone came along in her life who said, you know, I think you should pursue college and, and I'll pay for your first course at a local community college. And and that just opened the door for her. She ended up excelling in, in her course. And it really kind of uh, created that bug of like, okay, you know, I can do well in this one class and I want to keep going. And then she get she came to our program. We were able to provide the financial support and resources for her to increase the number of classes that she had. Uh, she earned her associate's degree and then transferred to uh, University of Maryland and is, is about to graduate with her bachelor's degree. But you know, did all of this while working as a janitor. Sometimes the graveyard shift. Um, you know, has two kids and is married and is just an incredible worker. She also has interned in legislative offices in Maryland and is like really passionate about policy work and just got her first uh, home. She's a homeowner now in the last several months. So I think, you know, I and I talk about Yaslin in the book and just she's such an example of how hard uh, people work, you know, particularly young parents are working to make 
ends meet and provide for their families. And, you know, someone who thought college was just completely out of grasp for her uh, as a DACA student, as a young mother with very little, you know, resources and financials. I think she just flies in the face of what we often think about when we think about teen parents. Oh, wow. I just love that story. I love the intentional use of the word scholar. But what I really love as I hear that is the power of belief. My hunch is not only have a lot of the folks beyond your organization, there are so many people right now that have never been called a scholar. And if you call them a scholar, it could change the course of their day and the course of their life. And the power of belief, I wouldn't be talking to you today if it wasn't for my sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Hirschman, who believed in me when I was about to turn the proverbial around corner. And so for everyone that's listening right now, I just want to remind you of the power of belief of pouring into someone and maybe saying words to them and speaking things into existence that maybe they can't see right now, but through you, they can do that. And I know that's what Generation Hope does. And it's just so powerful. So again, for listeners, there's someone that you can pour into today. You can help them believe things they can't believe just yet. So please do that. Oh, I I love this. Let's get to this question, though, of the best thing. I talk to people about sometimes the best thing to happen to them that wouldn't appear on their resume. That's non-traditional. That's not the traditional marker of success. And for you, I'm hoping we can dig into your book more, but tell me for you, oh, what is that? One of those things. Yeah. One of the best things to happen to me um, is probably becoming a mom young. Um, You know, I I found out I was pregnant my senior year of high school, uh, just as I had been accepted into several different colleges. And, And I should say I came from a home where education was huge, both my parents college educated and college was always the next step after high school. There was no doubt about that. Uh, so it was devastating, you know, at the time it it was um, it had completely just uh, decimated my support system. Um, the teachers who were my biggest champions were now some of my biggest critics and kind of wow. saying college is done and you're not going to be successful. You know, so my whole support system was gone and um, it was really hard for me to see how college was going to be possible. Um, but at the same time you know, that experience, while it it really took me down many, many dark days um, and periods of homelessness and how do I feed me and my child and all sorts of difficult things, um, I think it really led me to my life's purpose, which is, you know, doing this work today and helping to advocate for more young parents and also parenting college students to walk across the graduation stage. I would never have known you know, how important this work was without having my own experience. And and it's been the most, you know, rewarding thing. One of the most rewarding things, aside from being a mom, my daughter's now uh, 21 and about to graduate from college herself. Um, wow. So it's been really awesome to see it go full circle. And I can't imagine, you know, my life without her and her, her four, her three siblings. And I have a fourth sibling on the way. So... <laughs> We have a full house now. <laughs> I, I love it. Now, of course, Generation Hope didn't exist when you were in that position in high school. So I'm just curious for you. Uh, you mentioned a couple of things earlier. Well, one thing in the interview that really stood out and that you, people thought that you were the outlier. Like, you know, yeah. you, you're you're the you're the unique case, Nicole. I know that I know you did good, but not everyone else can expect to do what you did. So I'm curious when there was no Generation Hope for you and your youth. Who were some of those people or organizations? Where did, where did you seek support and encouragement during that challenging time? I wish that I could tell you that there were organizations. Um, 
that were a part of my journey, but there weren't organizations that were a part of my journey. Um, there weren't, you know, special supports on my college campus. William & Mary was not set up for students like me at all, um, not only because I was a young mom, but also, you know, it's a predominantly white institution. I was one of very few Black students that even attended. Um, and so it definitely, there wasn't any sort of system of support in place for me to get my degree. I had to do a lot of self-advocacy. I had to find loopholes in paperwork. I had to call offices, you know, 10 and 12 times to try to say, hey, can I get, um, you know, this apartment on campus? Can I be, I, mean, I remember things like I had to convince the parking office on campus to even let me bring my car uh, as a resident when I got a family housing apartment because I was a sophomore and and that wasn't allowed to have your car on campus, you know, as a sophomore. And I'm like, I have a child. <laughs> I need to like drive her around in the car seat. And But I had, I did have individuals in my life. I had, you mentioned a teacher that had a really big impact on you. I had a teacher, Miss Davis, who really essentially became like a second mom to me. And she was always a phone call away and she would always like encourage me and, um, you know, make sure that I knew that she was in my corner and, you know, really just, I think, emotionally was there in a major way. Um, my parents, you know, definitely my mom was completely <laughs> devastated and my dad by my pregnancy. But by the time I got to college, um, you know, our relationship had really gotten a lot better and, and she was another cheerleader in my life. So I did have individuals and I should say I had a group of friends on campus, a, a group of girlfriends who essentially became aunties to uh, my daughter and, and they would help like sometimes watch her so I could take a midterm and things like that. So I had to kind of weave together my own support system. Um, but I think because I had to do that, it was really helpful for me to think about what kind of support system uh, would I have benefit from, benefited from, you know, had I had I had one. And so that really helped me kind of shape and form the organization that I lead today. Wow. Um, I'm just thinking about students like, oh my goodness, it's been such a tough semester. I got a full load. And they're like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm taking five classes. I have, I have 18 credits. And you're like, you know what? You have, you have no idea. I know. I try not to say that to my 21 year old every now and then she'll be like, oh my God, you have no idea. And then she's like, wait a minute. <laughs> I can't say that to you. Wait a minute. I, I was three years I was on I was three, four years old when yeah. you were doing this. Uh tell me just briefly, you know, I know what it's like writing a book and it, it's a daunting challenge. And I think there are a variety of books that we can write. We can write the easy book where we yeah. phone it in, but we also can write the book where it's real. And we pull back the veneer, if you will, and we show who we are. And I know this book for you is personal. So I'm curious. Was it easy for you to write or was it a bit challenging? Like, am I really about to type this? Like, what was it like for you? <laughs> it was so hard. I had to have a conversation with myself where, like, one thing that I know is that there's connection when we're vulnerable. You know, there's connection when we're transparent. And we talk about that even in our organization. We, you know, mentoring is a huge part of our, of our organization. And one thing that I tell our mentors all the time is, be transparent about your own mistakes and, and your missteps, because those are the, the opportunities for someone to identify and connect with you. I've talked about before, you know, no one wants a perfect mentor. Mm. Nobody wants a perfect author either. <laughs> you know, like people want to 
to see themselves in your story. And so I had to just kind of make a pact with myself that I was going to be vulnerable, that I was going to be honest and kind of go there with um, what I was experiencing at the time, my mistakes, uh, what I was feeling, and really try to bring readers in as much as possible into what was happening in my life. And um, and so once I kind of resolved to do that and I started writing, it got easier. Um, but, you know, it's also hard to like go back and relive those moments, like to relive the moment I, I was standing in the bathroom and looking at a positive pregnancy test at 17 years old and how devastating that was and how instantly I felt like just I wasn't going to be the person I had envisioned I, I could be. So it was definitely hard um, to be open and vulnerable, but I do think that it brings people into the story in a way that, again, the whole point of this is for people to come away thinking differently about teen pregnancy and teen parents and what is possible. Yeah. I think those things, it brings about healing for ourselves as well. It brings about I think healing opportunities for others. Uh, I, I love what you said, that connection creates we create connection when we're vulnerable. Uh, what's a good, it's a great reminder for, for all of us. Uh, and I'm so happy that you truly poured into this book because we know we can, it's easy to fake the funk on stages or in books, et cetera, but I know that's not how you roll. My last question for you is this one. Um, obviously, extremely bright, you're talented, entrepreneur. There's a variety of things you could be doing. And I'm just curious, tell me about when you decided, you say, you know what, this is what I'm going to dedicate myself too. I'm sure you maybe had people in your life saying, you sure you want to do that? You sure you want to start, start a nonprofit? You sure you want to support that cause? We know it's part of your story, but it's not your whole story. But tell me why you said, no, this, this is, this is who I am. And this is what I want to pour into. Yeah. I, you know, when I'm, when I got my degree, I moved up to the DC area and I was working on my master's and, and working for a major insurance company and flying on a huge, you know, uh, a jet meeting, meeting with VPs of a billion dollar company and, and, you know, things were going well. And, and uh, I was definitely seeing the benefits of my college degree, not only in my life, but my daughter's life. Um, but I had this real like kind of pull to get more involved and, and help others who had, you know, were going through what I went through. I knew my story was rare. Less than 2% of teen moms get a degree before age 30. So uh, I was looking for a nonprofit that was going to, you know, allow me to help out and focus that, that was focused on this issue and none existed. And uh, none existed in D.C., none existed across the country or very few across the country. And, um, you know, here I was, I had this lived experience and I had shifted into the nonprofit sector and kind of given myself a training ground for nonprofit management. And Lily Tomlin has a quote that says, you know, I used to wonder, why doesn't somebody do something about that? And I realized I'm the somebody, you know, like all the fingers are pointing back at me. And I just had this incredible calling, like a pull on my heart that was just saying like, look, everything that you've been through, those difficult times where you didn't know if you were going to make it through and somehow you made it, like you made it for a reason and um, you're the person. And so, and and that's what it was about. And literally building it from ground zero, I had no seed funding. It started in my husband's man cave. I didn't draw a salary for the first four years, you know, working different jobs and working this job full time. And I mean, it was just, incredible, incredibly hard, a lot of 
kind of from ground zero, rolling up your sleeve and sleeves. And I think there, you know, people probably were looking at me and saying like, this is crazy. You could be working, you know, at some major PR firm and doing X, Y, and Z. But I felt really strongly that Generation Hope needed to exist in the world. And so, um, you know, it's thankfully I I did end up drawing a salary at some point. (laughs) (laughs) My husband was happy about that. Well, this is amazing. Well, two things that jump out of what you just said. First and foremost, I know your husband loves you if he lets you handle your business in the man cave. Like he's like, (laughs) (laughs) he was happy when we got an office. (laughs) He was happy, like, all right, I can have this man cave back. I can just have my recliner, watch this game. Exactly. Uh, Yes. Get out of here. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Uh, but also, I just love just the really empowering uh, words that you shared uh, and like the choice, the decision that you made, like you are that somebody. For the people who are listening that, that want to learn more about Generation Hope and, and hopefully equally want to support, uh, where's the best place for them to go? And I, I will we'll put all this information in the show notes as well. Yeah, they can go to generationhope.org and there's a ton of information, whether you want to volunteer, whether you'd like to make a donation, or if you're a teen parent or a student parent and you want to get more information about supports, um, all of that is there. You can also follow us on social media. We can continue the conversation there. Um, Support Gen Hope on Twitter and Instagram and Nicole and Lewis on Twitter and Instagram. Beautiful. And the beautiful words of Nicole Lynn Lewis, you made it for a reason. Now go do something with it, right? We made it for a reason. Now go do something with it. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. Thank you. This has been great. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Nicole Lynn Lewis. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. Hey, if you are not following the Best Thing podcast, I invite you to do that right now. And while you are at it, I invite you to leave the Best Thing podcast a five-star review and to be willing to share it with family, friends, colleagues, you name it. That is how we spread the word and continue to grow all of these amazing conversations that we are having. Hey, as you know, my book, Stop Living on Autopilot, is doing fantastic. It's available right now. Just head over to the show notes and you can learn more about how you can get your hands on the book. Okay, in the meantime, I want you to remember that the best is ahead. When you work and believe that the best is ahead, things begin to change for the better. Never forget that you have a say in this.